This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. To coincide with the UN Climate Change Conference, aka COP26, which is happening up in Glasgow this month, we're launching a short spin-off series just on ESG, which is Environmental, Social and Governance Factors. Now, this is a discussion that we're well-versed in by now, as it's been the hot topic within the industry for the past couple of years. But in this mini-series, which we'll release on Thursdays, we're specifically interviewing four or five experts who approach sustainability from a different angle or challenges some conventions within ESG. That being said, we do have to include a very short disclaimer that the opinions and views expressed by our guests are not necessarily representative of the value team or Schroeder's as a whole. Our guest in the ESG miniseries is Arjun Murthy. Arjun is a member of the ConocoPhillips board, a senior advisor to energy transition investors, and former partner at Goldman Sachs. He discusses with Juan and Alex Monk, a fund manager at Schroeder's, the history of energy transitions, what role traditional energy companies have in the climate change debate, hydrogen and renewables within the traditional oil and gas sector, as well as his outlook for energy companies of the future. Arjun Murthy. Thank you very much for being part of the Value Perspective podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, could we please start by hearing a little bit about you, your background, how you came about to become an expert in energy and working in energy and, and, and becoming an investor? You know, it's, it's really by chance. My career has been almost entirely as an equity research analyst that happened to have been focused in the oil and gas sector. It certainly wasn't on purpose, but my first job was at a small investment bank in Denver, Petrie Parkman, that specialized in this space. And I, I kind of fell in love with it. It was a global sector. I enjoyed traveling around the world, uh, understanding how different countries could impact oil prices everywhere else in the world. And I've continued throughout my career with that. So I was on the the buy side, uh, J.P. Morgan Asset Management for four years, and then the bulk of my career was at Goldman Sachs uh, as in as a sell side equity research analyst. I became a partner at Goldman. I ended up uh, co-running the America's Equities Research Department. Um, I, I stopped at Goldman in 2014, and since then I've been in a, an advisor at a private equity firm. I'm on the board of ConocoPhillips, and I'm a, an advisory board member at Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy, which is a nonpartisan public policy think tank. So I've I've really enjoyed this sector. And I think the Goldman experience highlighted that I did not like research management for sure. I mm-hmm. love being an analyst. Uh, and I'd say historically it was more oil and gas focused. Uh, that has morphed, of course, into clean energy, renewables, and kind of all the energy transition and climate stuff that now impacts the world uh, and both the traditional and newer sectors today. It's interesting that you made the transition outside of equity research in 2014 when pretty much energy was kind of making a turn a turn south. You know, my successor at Goldman uh, gives me credit that uh, my uh, dropping coverage of the sector was oil was still priced at $110 in July of 2014. So, you know, you, you can only go through so many of these cycles as sort of a, a public equity analyst, if you will. And I probably was ready for just a little change of pace. And I've, I really love this uh, post-Goldman life of sort of a portfolio of activities in and around the sector without one permanent home. I actually would advise that to anyone in a position to do so. It's also quite interesting that I don't remember the exact numbers, but I guess like energy as percentage of pretty much any index in the world has declined a lot to the point that today it's quite, quite small. That that transition must have been quite interesting to, to go through, right? I mean, it's remarkable. So again, my career started in 1992. And from that point through 2014, when I stopped at Goldman, um, if we look at U.S. markets, and I've, I've been based in the U.S. And, and really in New York for the vast bulk of my career, though at various times I've looked at the global sector overseeing those teams. But in the S&P 500, as an example, energy has traditionally been 8 to 15% of the S&P, with the bulk of that weight driven by the major oils, uh, Exxon, and it used to be Mobil, and Texaco, and Chevron, and all these types of companies have, of course, merged into just a handful of names. But it was always a critically important sector. 
Um, and kind of my standard line on that is, if you look at ExxonMobil, this of course used to be Standard Oil. And since it was broken up in 1911 by the US government, uh, from that point up until really the last five years, it was a top three stock in the S&P 500. It was Standard Oil yeah. Company, New Jersey, that became Exxon, it became ExxonMobil. And through all the ups and downs, through World War I, World War II, Vietnam War, Korean War, Arab oil embargo years of the 1970s, the bust of the 80s and 90s, the super cycle of the 2000s, through all that, Exxon was a top three stock. When Exxon started uh, teetering, um, and we don't have to get into that on this podcast, but when they made some perhaps not so good investment and acquisition decisions, the sector kind of followed its lead and it's gotten left behind. And for the first time in my career, the traditional oil and gas space is an irrelevant portion of the S&P 500, it's two to 3%. Mm. So when I speak to companies, uh, they're always worried about their competitors, uh, where should they invest, what's the right dividend policy. I say your biggest risk is actually investor irrelevance, that people mm. don't care. Mm. Um, steel is still an important sector, but does anyone live and die by what happens to steel companies or aluminum? Maybe a little more right now today as we're talking when there's talk about commodity and energy shortages. But I do worry from the perspective of traditional companies, they've fallen to the point of irrelevance. And I think it does not have to be. They've in part chosen this path through a variety of different unfortunate decisions they make, but there is a path back. Um, and, and we may be at the beginning of that. And I think time will tell if they can get back to a more respectable weighting, which true in the US is also, of course, true in Europe and other parts of the world in terms of the diminished relevance for investors of the traditional oil and gas space. And the big question is, are we at a positive inflection where they can kind of fight back to at least some modicum of credibility? That's really interesting. Thank you. Arjun, it's uh, Alex Monk here. Um, uh, I work on the, the Global Resource Equities team uh, at Schroders. You mentioned uh, that you know the traditional uh, energy majors have sort of become more irrelevant in terms of their position in, in the global market. And I guess part of that is because we're potentially about to go through the third great energy transition that we've been through through history you know the first being the move away from biomass into coal and the industrial revolution the second being the shift to oil and gas and automobiles in the early 1900s when you look at the world today you know where do you see our energy system in 30 years time what does our energy system look like in the future and you know do you think we can meet uh, these net zero goals that we've set around the world so i want to answer your net zero question but I might push back slightly on the premise of your question, which is I think the number one issue plaguing the traditional oil and gas space has been the poor profitability it generated over the last decade. And I'd say that has been the overwhelming driver for its diminished uh, investment relevance at a time where other sectors, especially technology and, and those types of current high growth sectors in what's been a somewhat let's just call it secular stagnation type GDP environment, have been able to perform very well. So I'd say a huge portion of the industry's problems has been the self-inflicted wound of bad investments and poor profitability. For sure, there is a question on what is the long-term outlook for oil demand and natural gas demand, and are we going to transition away? And that might be putting some compression on, let's just say, terminal value calculations. But again, I think the overriding miss has been one of poor profitability. And I think that's in the process of turning that remains to be seen. But, but let me get to your net zero question. So in my personal view is, I think the world absolutely should be looking to transition to lower carbon intensive forms of energy. And to have this goal of net zero by 2050 is an excellent goal and it is theoretically possible. I, I think the issue is, I don't think we're on track at this moment to achieve it. And let me just highlight kind of three areas of missed opportunity that I see today that I think drives the skepticism that we're on track for net zero by 2050. The first is disappointing fuel efficiency gains, especially as it relates to oil demand. The second be nuclear, and the third would be methane and natural gas. And if you're okay, Alex, maybe I can address each of those very quickly to go through some of that. And so if you look at fuel efficiency as it impacts oil demand, we are way off track from what are called CAFE standards here in the US, corporate average fuel economy, which in a nutshell is your government required miles per gallon, as we'd say here in the US, improvement in vehicles. Um, 
improving fuel efficiency drives almost all of the heavy lifting in terms of these peak demand forecasts that you see from either the IEA's net zero port or BP or any other high profile forecasters, the heavy lifting on wheel oil demand peak soon comes from fuel efficiency. But we're missing those targets. The world is missing those targets. The United States and China specifically are missing those targets by 70 to 95%. The CAGR, the actual CAGR in miles per gallon is 0.4% over the last 10 and 20 years. The government is mandating 3 to 4% improvement in fuel economy. And most people take the government mandates as the given when they forecast peak oil demand. Yet any analyst can do these numbers. And we're missing those government mandates by almost the entire amount. And that is because, especially here in the US, people are shifting from cars to SUVs. There's been a huge mix shift. And the increasing weight of those SUVs, even though an SUV today is more fuel efficient than one 20 or 30 years ago, essentially goes to offsetting almost all of the government mandated fuel economy gains. There's a difference between real world driving. There's the fact that cars you trade in don't die, just someone else buys it and they continue to be on the road. And by the way, at a diminishing fuel efficiency over time would be my guess. So that's a big, big miss. It makes us entirely dependent on the electric vehicle ramp. Now, this, no one ever believes this. I am a passionate believer in electric vehicles. I've had the good fortune to have driven a Tesla for the last six years. And I personally will never drive for my own car an ICE vehicle again. I love driving an electric vehicle, but I'm also very lucky to be someone who worked on Wall Street and had the type of job that allowed me to afford an EV. And I think the time frame to turning over the ICE vehicle fleet is measured in multiple decades. It's not measured in five years. The second area I want to address is nuclear. I am not a nuclear expert. As I mentioned in my background, it's mostly the upstream oil and gas space and some of the related renewable sectors. That's my area of expertise. But as an energy expert, it is really hard to understand why you would prematurely close plants that are in existence today whose lives could be safely extended, and maybe that's the catchword, but I will say safely extended, especially in California, New York, and Germany, which come to mind, at a time when we haven't addressed the intermittency issues that exist in renewables. And you can see most clearly, you all are based in the UK, I believe, you can clearly see it there. Um, we need to shift. I want to make it very clear. We need to shift to cleaner, less carbon-intensive forms of energy. But until you have more robust battery storage and other backup sources, why would you close the cleanest form of energy you have today, nuclear? I, I, I don't understand that. The third area is natural gas. And here I'm going to put the blame clearly on the oil industry for not being more proactive in finding an industry-wide solution to methane. And methane would be the reason why perhaps natural gas doesn't deserve to be considered a, a transition fuel from coal to natural gas on our way to renewables. It should be an energy transition fuel. The rest of the world, in particular China and India, which have massive coal resources, should transition to natural gas. But if industry does not proactively deal with methane, and today we have the technology and the ability to address it at a pretty low cost relative to what might've been the case five or 10 years ago, um, I blame industry for having it called into question as to whether natural gas is a transition fuel. And so my point would be, when we're not doing the easy stuff or the stuff that's doable today, miles per gallon, no one, very few people have to drive an SUV. Right? You can definitely clean up cafe regulation, nuclear. Maybe you don't want to build new plants. I, I disagree with that, but maybe you don't. But what about the existing plants? Why would you shut them down? It makes no sense. And then not flaring your methane to ensure natural gas is a viable transition. You're going to have to do all these things if you want to say you're on the path to net zero by 2050. So I think we should be on that path. And I would say, unfortunately, I don't think we are. I mentioned on this podcast with another guest, this tweet that I came across some time ago. It was a little bit of a joke, but like with every joke, there's a little bit of truth behind it. And it was saying something along the lines of, if it wasn't for the people um, protesting against nuclear in the 1970s, the world wouldn't be uh, in the position that it is today. It would be a little bit more clean. And, and I think that you will correct me if I'm wrong, but 
that there are these very um, polarizing um, positions when it comes to climate change at the moment. And even some states in the U.S., especially on the West Coast now, they don't even want to hear the world. They don't want, they, they want nothing to do with gas at the moment. And, and, and they are fighting to, to stop gas to being used even in, in buildings for heating. And so I guess my point is those very um, strict positions when you don't have any other alternative seems to make things worse short, like medium to long term rather than short term. Would you agree with that? It, there's absolutely no question that every single person on Earth will absolutely take electricity and gasoline or whatever form of energy to power and heat their homes or businesses and for transportation that they can get today. As, as my colleague Jason Bordoff at Columbia mentioned in a recent op-ed, when the colonial gasoline pipeline in the U.S. went down, the only question was how quickly can you get it back up online? There was no debate about, hey, isn't it good that we're not selling gasoline to the East Coast? That'll force those crazy New Yorkers to buy a bunch of electricity. There's no talk about that. It's impractical. Every single person on earth, with the possible exception of a small, small, tiny minority of environmental extremists, will absolutely take electricity, power, and transportation fuels. So when you start saying, I am morally opposed to this or that, you darn well better have and ensure that what you're proposing can meet requirements. I think there's a big risk today that when you prematurely transition away from stuff that everyone uses uh, to stuff that doesn't always work, you're at risk. And again, that's not to say we shouldn't be pushing towards renewables. We should. But you're going to need battery storage to become much more economical so that when the wind is blowing very hardly and when the sun is shining especially bright, we can store those molecules and use it when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. And if you don't have that today, if you don't have adequate storage capacity, which we obviously do not, how can you talk about saying, I don't want natural gas on some purity uh, type objective? That's fine if you're an elite, if you're part of the 1% or perhaps even the 5%. That's fine if you're an environmental extremist to have those views. You're certainly entitled to them. But what about everybody else? What about the billions of people in Africa, India, China, and Asia, and even in the United States and perhaps in the UK and Europe who, who are energy poor today or maybe have energy nothing? Like how, how many daily active users does Facebook have? Do they have 1 billion or 2 billion? So there's 7.8 billion people on earth. Sadly, daily active users for, 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 for energy is only like 5.8 or 6 billion. There's potentially as much as 2 billion people who burn bad biomass in their homes to heat it. Yet we're going to take some purity pledge. I'm not going to use natural gas or I'm going to be upset that this nuclear plant might theoretically have some problems. What about the billions of people? And there is an absolute responsibility on the part of elites, on the part of the one in 5%, and on the part of environmental extremists to not leave people behind. That is absolutely immoral. And you can talk about change. You can talk about warming. Those are all very serious issues. So the counter to the oil industry is you can't just talk about reducing energy poverty. You have to eliminate flaring. You have to eliminate methane leaks. Uh, you have to be part of the solution as well. So that's a great segue into my next question, which is um, traditional energy companies have been vilified for causing the current state of affairs. They are enemy number one. But you will correct me if I'm wrong, but they are not going away anytime soon. And there is no one that knows more about hydrocarbons than, than them. So what would you say is the role these companies should play in the whole climate change debate? Currently, so I, I'm always perplexed that everyone wants a traditional big oil company, which people generally don't like. Right? I mean, no, no consumers like ah, I love the gas station I go to. They're happy it's there. They definitely wouldn't want it to not be there. But no one says, "Man, I really love you know BP or Exxon. It's such a great gas station." No, no one says that. Right? <laughs> um, investors love to hate. Go on Twitter and look at, you know, energy EFT. It is nothing but pure hatred for the sector that they're otherwise invested in and cover. And it's because the profitability is not good. There's, there's consensus <laughs> to not like traditional oil and gas, but you critically need it. 
And I don't know why people want to rope these companies in to being forced to invest in future technologies that they don't know anything about. There is no shortage of capital on Wall Street for electric vehicles. You, you don't need uh, oil companies doing any of this stuff. When it comes to hydrogen, wind, solar, there are so many companies out there, both in the United States, in Europe, in China, and other parts of Asia. They're investors funding this stuff. There's absolutely no shortage of capital. This, this mantra that every big oil has to become an energy transition leader, it's absurd. They have one overwhelming responsibility, and that is to provide whatever oil and gas is demanded during the period we are transitioning, for however long we end up transitioning, to produce that at as low a cost of supply as possible. And hopefully for the benefits of their shareholders at a profitable uh, cost of supply. Um, that is their only goal. The number two goal, as far as it relates to being part of climate, is to clean up what they are responsible for. And there's no question oil and gas companies directly responsible for methane that they flare into the atmosphere and for leaks that come out of the pipelines in other areas. And it used to be hard to detect this stuff, but thanks to drones and other technologies, you can detect this stuff much easier. And I actually think flaring is getting to the point where it's inexcusable. We used to not want to, excuse me, we used to dump uh, chemicals into rivers in the 1970s and society said, you know what, it's not such a great thing. Let's not do that anymore and let's clean it up. We need the equivalent of that for methane. Individual companies, to their credit, are promising to do that. You really need an industry solution, either industry-wide or in various basins or, or areas of operation. So clean up what you're responsible for. Asking an oil company to deal with consumer choice, it's absurd. How is an oil company responsible for the limitless Amazon delivery trucks endlessly circling all of our neighborhoods? What is it? What oil company's got anything to do with that? What oil company can impact even a single ICE vehicle in the global car park? What oil company can force any consumer to not buy an SUV? And so this sort of scope three insanity, which is let's hold oil companies responsible for that which either consumers don't want to deal with on their own, or that governments don't have the guts or the strength to enact via their own policies. Again, look at CAFE, how significantly it is missed. That is, in the United States, a bipartisan effort. You can't blame Democrats, you can't blame Republicans. Both parties here in the US, and I would argue in author or authoritarian regimes, for example, in China and other parts of the world, Wherever you are, there's a huge, huge miss on fuel efficiency, none of which, or very, very little which, has anything to do with any major oil company. They should be responsible for producing whatever oil and gas at as low a cost of supply. I'm an investor person, so I'd say as profitably as possible. That is their role. And if it turns out that oil demand is declining in the future, then as an investor, you're going to say, I don't want you growing your supply. Uh, maybe I want you to turn into a yield vehicle with dividends or stock buybacks. Maybe the goal is to gobble up other companies who are exiting the business. Um, consumer demand is going to determine what is the fate of oil companies, not ESG investors, not government hatred towards oil companies. Again, no one likes their, their local gas station, but you critically need it. It sounds like in terms of, you know, obviously we're seeing some of the energy majors, particularly uh, on the European side of the Atlantic, starting to invest, you know, significantly um, in renewable projects, in things like hydrogen. It, it sounds like if you were kind of the captain of those ships, you would be advising against that. Maybe in terms of something like carbon capture and sequestration, um, you know, is that something that you would be advising an oil company today to be investing in to prolong their kind of ability to either provide uh, this resource profitably, um, but also as regulations start to kick in. I mean, looking at high um, carbon prices today uh, in Europe, you know, they're at uh, above 70 US dollars per ton. You know, the, the your carbon prices are rising. So it'd be interesting to get your thoughts. You know, if you were the CEO of a major oil and gas company, um, you know, what technologies would you be advising them to invest in? Or is it simply a case of running down these businesses? No, th thank you for asking that question, because it does offer me an opportunity to clarify my previous answer. So I wouldn't say that there's no new technology any oil company should be investing in. Again, I think they have to prove first that they're good at what they've historically done. And as I mentioned earlier, for the last decade, profits in the traditional oil and gas space were poor. Um, 
So if you invested poorly in the area you knew best, who are you to invest in some new technology, especially when there's a lot of excellent companies in those areas who may or may not be profitable, but at least are leaders. And I'm going to think of like Tesla as an example. They're clearly a leader in the electric vehicle space, perhaps not super profitable, but a leader nonetheless. Um, I think there might be logical areas in these newer technologies for energy companies to invest in. Uh, I actually think carbon capture uh, and direct air capture are, are either areas traditional oil and gas companies are going to have to invest in, or they're going to have to incorporate uh, one way or the other. So I think it, it is reasonable to say, I think it's unreasonable to say, um, you know, Exxon, BP, Shell, Total, you're responsible for consumers driving their cars and burning CO2 to the atmosphere. I mean, that, that's absurd. That is the modern lives of which we all live. But I think you can say that by some year, and I don't know what year it is, I don't know if it's 2030, 2040, or 2050, the barrels you produce or the MCFs you produce should be. I'm going to say carbon-free or net zero. And I do think carbon capture and direct air capture are two opportunities by which if your barrel or MCF has a certain uh, CO2 characteristic or, or value associated with it, that that value should be offset by carbon capture or storage. Now, there's a whole bunch of issues today with the carbon offset mat market, which I, you know, I think it's probably beyond the scope of either my expertise or this podcast. I'm not suggesting companies should be let off the hook by promising to someone else that they're not going to cut down some tree in theory. I, I'm talking about true and actual and verifiable. And we're not there yet on any of this stuff. We're not there on the accounting. We're not there on the verify part. We're not there on costs as it relates to CCUS or direct air capture. But I do think that is an area, again, maybe it makes sense for them as some of them to invest in, or maybe it makes sense for them to partner with companies to get that benefit. And therefore, they have to put in real investment dollars. When I look at sort of the European majors and how aggressively they're transitioning, I respect, first of all, that they are sincere in their efforts. I don't think at this point they're doing it for publicity or to greenwash, as some would say. I think they are sincere in wanting to transition. I'll say, as an American, my comfort level is much greater with what Chevron proposed at their recent analyst day, where it's a little bit of a go slow approach over the next decade. We're going to look at a number of technologies. I don't want to be, I don't want to misquote Chevron, but I believe hydrogen, carbon capture, and some of these technologies were part of that portfolio. They talked about renewable diesel and renewable natural gas. Those all strike me as logical uh, adjacent areas that where you might be able to generate good profits and where there might be some basis to believe there's expertise. And I think that is a, a way in a proactive sense, not just cleaning up your methane mess that you can engage in energy transition, renewable diesel, renewable natural gas, carbon capture, director capture, and possibly hydrogen. I am personally less comfortable with the very aggressive transition st strategies that the European oils are taking, but it's quite possible they'll be proven right. Um, they have all been great companies over, frankly, centuries. If you look at Shell, like Exxon, they were a great company in 1907 when Royal Dutch Petroleum merged with Shell Transport and Trading, and they remain a great company today. So who am I to, to, to cast dispersions on their more aggressive transition strategy? Um, why is it that, I mean, the oil majors are very cash flow generative companies. I mean, the, the amount of free cash flow that they generate tends to be very, um, very high. Why is it that they have been so slow in investing, or maybe I'm wrong, in some of the technologies that you say they are, they are going to be looking into the future? Why are they outsourcing that responsibility to someone else to come up with the technologies when they could potentially be doing it? Or is just that that's just out of their scope? So I would say when, to go back to the beginning of our conversation, when the majors have been 8 to 15% of the S&P 500 and equivalent for the FTSE and so forth, they were very free cash generative. And they had very good profitability. That, that's not been the case over the last decade. The free cash flow significantly diminished. Um, they weren't even covering their dividends in many cases. And I know certainly Exxon went from having more cash than debt to having way more debt than cash or anything else. So there's they've not been a lot of free cash flow. And, and where did that failure come from? It came from their traditional business. So again, the first order of businesses uh, improve what you are, your core competency is. 
And, and again, it's going to boil down to, to, to core competency and core expertise. When you think of newer technologies, and when you think of the types of companies that succeed in them, is it really legacy companies that do this? Who, who cracked the code on electric vehicles? Was it General Motors? Was it Toyota? And I'll say this respectfully, was it BMW or Mercedes, two great <laughs> German auto manufacturers, the greatest manufacturers in the history of auto manufacturing? No, it was Tesla. It was a new company with a different mindset. Tesla's got its own issues. We're not here to debate, I'm sure, the investment merits of Tesla. I'm talking about just the actual vehicle. Let's produce an electric vehicle. People actually want to buy. Can you imagine that? Right? Can you imagine that? And so why do we think legacy old oil companies are going to be the leaders in new technologies? It's not credible from an investor perspective. And if you have a core competency or competitive edge, so if you've got a refining business, um, as many of them do, there is a logic to renewable diesel. It's much better than the old biofuels that you might remember from the 1990s, which frankly seem like an ag policy guised as an energy security policy and did nothing for energy security and was actually bad for the environment, though perhaps it helped some farmers around the world. Renewable diesel is much more interesting. Now, you've got issues with feedstock sourcing. Um, and can you do that efficiently? But the actual end product is certainly significantly cleaner than crude oil cracked uh, diesel, as an example. And I think that is a logical area for oil companies to, produce, uh, to pursue. H hydrogen probably fits in that bucket as well. I am not a hydrogen expert. I'm sure you can talk to others who are. It's possible that could be an area of, of investment. But again, I, 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 think it's, I think there's this mindset that majors have lots of cash flows and therefore, all those cashers should go towards helping, quote unquote, society address its climate problem. There are 2 billion people who don't have anything as it relates to energy. Let's help them. If you want to critique oil companies, how about a more proactive plan to make those that are energy poor uh, energy richer than they are today? That, that would actually be a constructive thing that you could do if we're thinking of societal goals. Clean up their mess. Um, that's something you can do. But simply having cash flow, it, 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 frankly, I don't understand the connection to why that should be used for climate. There are plenty. There's plenty of cash flow. There's plenty of investor capital. There's no shortage of investor capital chasing climate solutions. What, why do we need like seven oil companies to be part of that? And going back to what you were saying before uh, about the European majors, why is it that you are not? But correct me if I'm wrong, if, if I got the interpretation of this right, wrong. Um, why is it that you are not so convinced about transitioning into renewables as part of their main business? I mean, so is that I think, renewables are just so, so different from what they do? Is it because the return profile of renewables is completely different? The area I would be least excited about as it relates to traditional oil and gas companies would be transitioning to power generation and specifically renewables. I, I, I don't understand what the competitive advantage is in those markets. Power markets are very different than uh, traditional oil and gas and transportation-oriented markets. Uh, it, they're not utilities. They don't have that mindset. Producing power to citizens is a very different dynamic than essentially selling a raw material, crude oil and natural gas, to, to frankly, a wholesaler who then might refine it, who then might market it, who then might sell it. I mean, I, Oil companies today, as I hopefully people appreciate, own very few of their actual gas stations, probably a little bit more in Europe, very few in the US and in other parts of the world, the national oil companies make that statement hit or miss depending on where you are. But it's just a simply a different business. What expertise? I mean, why don't we just ask, why don't they just get into cloud storage? Like, why, why don't they get into that? That seems like an exciting area. Um, the beer business is kind of, I'm a beer drinker. Why don't we get into the beer business? I mean, there's like, there's so many other, like, why don't they get into 5G? Like that, that to me sounds more interesting than solar. I, I, like, I don't understand why just because they produce oil and gas, somehow that makes them energy experts, broadly speaking. And it certainly doesn't make them power generation experts. It's just, it's an absurd mindset the world has today. This, we're going to force companies to do something that they know nothing about. What? What? Is that is that where hydrogen is maybe a little bit different? You know, it's, we can electrify a lot lots of our economy, but electricity is 
not particularly great at creating heat. And to fully decarbonize some of those harder to abate areas, steel, cement, some of those heavy industries, we are going to need some form of combustion fuel, whether it be you know gas, whether it be synthetic fuels, or, or whether it potentially be green hydrogen. That green hydrogen market at the moment is, is still so small. Is green hydrogen potentially, or, or blue hydrogen, or whatever color of hydrogen, potentially where some of these energy companies do have a right to win and where they do have that existing infrastructure to, to be able to create a market and create another growth driver for their business that potentially could come at better returns given the lack of competition in that space versus renewals? I think that's right. So I, I would agree that hydrogen is certainly an area worth investigating on the part of, especially let's just call it integrated major oil companies, perhaps more so than a pure play upstream exploration production company, which at least in the United States still is a large portion of the market, less so in the rest of the world where they do tend to be integrated majors. But um, again, I'm with, with apologies to people who are actual hydrogen experts, I think it's pretty clear gray hydrogen is, I think, my, if I have my colors correct, is probably not so great environmentally. I think with blue hydrogen, the question is going to be, critically, can you account fully for the methane flaring and leakage and other negative externalities? I think if you can, then blue hydrogen has a chance. But that is an area I, I actually would think that if you're an integrated major, I, I don't think you have to be proponents of blue is best. And I think your comment that green, uh, we're probably going to need at some point, especially for difficult to abate sectors. I would agree that that is an area worthy of investment. Probably still some questions as to whether private capital, venture capital, and, and so forth is the better avenue. But certainly, I think it, it is credible for at least the majors to have um, some number of folks uh, investing uh, in these areas, uh, for sure. I'm very much interested in uh, to hear your opinion on the whole capital preservation argument to force the hand of many fossil fuel companies to make a transition. Will this actually have any meaningful impact or will it just make matters worse? And in line with that argument, do you believe it to be true that the cost of capital for these companies will rise as a whole? I mean, so I, I find this to be the most absurd and dangerous line of thinking that exists today, that somehow if you limit oil supply Frankly, only in some locations, apparently the accessible locations, you can go protest an oil sands facility or a pipeline delivering oil. So we're going to protest this pipeline and somehow this is going to make any difference to anyone anywhere in the world that is actually positive. Now, in the short term, if you protest an oil pipeline in the oil sands, it simply gets trucked or railed out of the oil sands. That for sure is worse environmentally. Uh, you've negatively impacted blue collar jobs in Canada and the U.S., um, and you simply shifted supply to most likely the Middle East or Russia. Now, again, I'm an American, so I apologize for that perspective that Canada is good and it's better than the Middle East and Russia. I, I absolutely believe that as an American, and I apologize to your global listeners for that perspective. Um, but the point would be that unlike electricity markets, oil supply is global. Uh, stopping supply from a specific company or group of companies or a specific location is simply going to mean you're going to produce it somewhere else. So why not go protest the new Iranian export facility or go protest Nord Stream 2, which I'm going to guess no one's going to want to protest because I think you're going to want that natural gas in, in the UK, if I'm not mistaken at this moment. right? So energy security is a huge issue that I think this sort of let's stop a handful of Western oil companies from developing their oil. I think it's completely irrelevant. Um, you're going to have to deal with consumer choice. Uh, and so I've already mentioned the failure of CAFE. I've mentioned the preference of SUVs. So instead of banning ICE vehicles, how about banning SUVs? That is not going to be a, a politician winning platform. But if you wanted to actually do something for the climate, how about either banning SUVs or maybe this is more sensible, a gas guzzler tax, which I think someone had talked about in the 1970s. For every mile per gallon, over 30 below 30 miles per gallon that your car SUV gets, an extra 10 or 50 or $100,000 to buy that vehicle. So we're not limiting consumer choice. We're making you pay for your pollution as a consumer and voluntarily choosing a bigger car than you actually need to drive. Restricting supply by just a handful of companies, it's just silly and absurd. Um, and it's going to be negative for reducing energy poverty. It's going to be negative for geopolitical security, both of which we can already see, especially in Europe and China and California uh, today. All of that to repeat is not to let oil companies off the hook. The mess they have created and are responsible for 
as it relates to methane, perhaps as it relates to orphan wells or some other areas that I think big companies are dealing with, but you need mid and small size. I mean, that's the other irony. The big companies are doing a lot of correct things. You actually need the broader industry. You need NOCs and IOCs, none of which, for whatever reason, get the ire of especially Western environmentalists. You need them to get on board with this stuff. If you clean that stuff up, you will put a dent, an actual dent, and it's achievable today based on current technology and current estimated cost to clean up, to deal with. Do that stuff and then figure out how you can uh, change consumer behavior, again, away from inefficiency and, and, and ICE cars to, to something better. Cost of capital has gone up already, and it's gone up because industry had poor profitability over the last decade. So it's gone up because traditional investors said, why am I going to waste my time in a sector with such inherent volatility where profitability isn't good? Um, and, you know, and so I think cost of capital was already going up. When you now add in the uncertainty of when does that oil demand curve roll over, I personally think it's after 2030. Other people think it maybe already happened before the pandemic or maybe might happen this decade. I'm in the it's somewhere after 2030 and probably after 2035 type camp, but it's also not never. For a variety of reasons unrelated to climate, oil demand would have naturally started to level off. And again, I think that's probably a discussion for another podcast. And so there is some long-term good news in there. I'm not sure it would decline sharply without stronger policy objectives, but it certainly is on track to level off uh, even in the absence of, of climate. All that negatively impacts oil company cost of capital and actually hurts reduction of energy poverty, affordability of energy, and hurts uh, energy security. You mentioned Nord Stream 2 there and kind of some of the supply disruption that, that we're seeing around the world at the moment. Uh, certainly on my cycle in today, there were people queuing up uh, for miles outside petrol stations. Uh, obviously, changing the supply picture, you know, we're likely maybe to have more extreme weather. There is pressure on, on, on oil uh, and gas companies adding new supply. And as you say, maybe the demand side of things, uh, you know, who knows how quickly it will go, but it can be slower than turning off supply. Do you expect going forward? that we'll see more of these sort of uh, energy spikes or energy price spikes and supply squeezes that will create volatility in these markets? And you know, what does that mean, I suppose, for the, the broader transition? So one of the things I try to do best is avoid specific price forecasts now that I'm no longer the Goldman Sachs uh, super spike analyst. But I will answer your question, which is, um, if we are in an environment where traditional investors are upset with oil companies for past poor profitability, and no one wants any of these guys drilling more wells, and you have these ESG and climate pressures, you are in for an environment where supply won't be as robust as it otherwise would be. Uh, and that does lead to periods of, of spiking prices. Energy prices were historically very volatile. My friend Bob McNally wrote a great book called Crude Volatility. It goes through the history of this business and the long history of price spikes and cycles. That existed long before there were concerns over climate or ESG or any of these kind of things. And so that will continue. But in an environment where you're artificially, or potentially, I should say, artificially restricting supply in areas that are on, again, the, the geopolitical right side of, of the line, you're certainly subjecting yourself to a bunch of risks that I don't think regular people want, nor should they have. I, I don't think spiking energy prices is good for the environment. Um, how is it good to turn back on a coal plant? How, how, how is that helpful? Again, why are you shutting down your nuclear plant if we're going to end up with having to turn back on a coal plant? That can't be a good trade. I don't think you have to be a diehard environmentalist to think that's a bad trade. You know, so... Um, Dealing with price volatility, um, on the one hand, it's going to be critical to ensuring we continue to transition because you can see the headlines already. And I actually think, ironically, they're, they're unjustified that we're going to blame the entirety of this on solar and wind. It for sure deserves some blame, but it does not deserve the entirety of the blame because we have a long history of, of volatility. And frankly, um, companies could be drilling more today. We could, have, we could have had more supply if uh, traditional investors or management teams had encouraged it. And maybe that's why you have a price signal. I think the final point I'd just make is 
often price volatility can be a driver for positive change. So if you go back to the air, and maybe this is a positive note as we're winding down here. If you look at the Arab oil embargo years, it was very painful. I was a young kid at the time, but I remember, uh, you know, uh, in the U.S., waiting in gas lines with my mom, and you'd have this uh, odd and even license plate day on when you were even allowed to fill gas. No one wants to go back to that. But what was the outcome? That is the only period in history that the ten years after the Arab oil embargo years, where we actually had a dramatic improvement in fuel economy. At the time, we got Japanese imports of vehicles to replace Ford and GM's big legacy gas guzzler cars. So there was something good that came out of that very painful period. Uh, we also shifted away from oil as a power generation fuel. I think we shifted away because of energy security, uh, as opposed to any other reason. Uh, perhaps today we'll get a mixture of energy security um, and some climate reasons for shifting away. So there is something that uh, the world does benefit from the volatility, though I promise you no one likes the volatility. Um, even investors don't like it. These things are too volatile. It's unsustainably high. Obviously, it's very painful for consumers, especially any middle or lower income consumer. Politicians hate it because they get blamed for their bad policies. The blame is probably justified, but it makes them want to uh, shy away from policies we probably need. On the other hand, it does motivate behavioral change. Um, and, and that is something that is needed today if we want to address climate. Arjun, we're coming to an end to the to, to our session, and I'm I'm going to ask you a final question, but I'm going to split it in two. So the first part is if you could persuade every investor to add one extra step into their investment process, what would that be? And the second part of the question is, if you were the CEO of an oil and gas major today. What are the three things you would do to secure the business for the future? Those are great questions. I think the investor question, I, the most important thing I look at is sort of understanding an industry's long-term profitability cycles. For me, that's return on capital, perhaps a free cash generation element to it. And most importantly, when are we at major inflections? Again, if you look at the traditional oil and gas business, from 1991 to 2006, we had a major uptrend in industry profitability. And I would note for the first decade of that, 1991 to 2000, oil was stagnant between $15 and $20 a barrel. It was restructuring, it was self-improvement that drove a dramatic improvement in profitability. So I would dissuade people from the notion that any bet on energy is always a bet, or excuse me, oil and gas is always a bet on high oil and gas prices. Year to year, there can be lots of volatility if oil and gas are up or down in that year. But the structural trend is, frankly, X commodity prices. And I would note that cycle peaked in 06. So we started a super cycle that began in 2004, peaked, peak number one was 2008, and it continued until 2014. But the profitability cycle peaked in 2006, two years, and at $70 oil, two years before, we ultimately got to $147 in July of 2008. And why, why did it peak? Companies started frankly, over-investing in projects that require too high of a price, uh, and they got away from their sort of their core competency. That, and that then resulted in a 15-year down cycle, 2006 to 2020. Now, the 2000, we thought the cycle bottomed in 2016. We had the double dip due to the, 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 the pandemic. Um, I think 2021 is the start of a new multi-year up cycle in profitability for especially your top quartile companies. Your best-in-class oil and gas companies have historically generated very competitive returns on capital, irrespective of what oil and gas prices do. And I would encourage investors to focus on those long-term cycles and probably most importantly, resist ideology and groupthink narrative. Um, and maybe I'll leave that question at that. Uh, your second question was, if I was the CEO of an oil major, what are the things I would do to secure the business? I think first and foremost, you always have to fix the existing company. So if at a given level of oil prices, and maybe that's 50 or 60, you are not generating double-digit returns on capital. If in a modest price environment, you cannot generate competitive levels of profitability, you really don't have a reason to exist. So what are the things you can do to restructure, that can be asset divestitures. It might be an acquisition, though that's harder to believe that investing capital is the path to better profitability. 
for someone who hasn't demonstrated in the past that their investments generated adequate profitability. If you didn't do it good in the past, why should I believe you're going to invest well in the future? The first thing is always fix the company. And that's balance sheet and it's returns on capital more than anything. I think the second thing is to understand what are your core competencies and competitive advantages in anything? Um, you know, I, 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 it's tough to use some recent examples because I have some involvement with them. But let's just say you're European oil um, and you're, you, you don't have a good track record in shale, as an example. It can be logical. Even if shale is an attractive business to some, for white might not be attractive business to you. And so I'm very sympathetic to people figuring out what they're good and bad at. But what are the areas you are good at, right? And only in those areas should you invest. I think the third area is where are the areas you're going to have to take a chance on? Because what is the good area today is never the good area tomorrow. Again, if I go back to the beginning of my career, uh, you used to want to be conventional oil and gas. And by the way, you used to not want to be a US oil company in the 1990s. Everyone knew you wanted to go to more complex projects in the rest of the world. And some point that shifted to deep water, then suddenly shale came around. And first it was shale gas. And then it was shale oil and even shale gas. It used to be the Barnett shale in Texas, and then it became Appalachia. And so the areas of future goodness or differential return opportunity is always changing. And I think to, to both your questions, and maybe Alex, you asked this more, was does any of that seriatim of future good opportunity exist in clean energy? It absolutely does. I will say, as I personally think there's a higher hurdle and more skepticism that should be attached to a traditional oil and gas company investing in those areas. But whether it's hydrogen, which we talked about, carbon capture, director capture, perhaps that then fits on that bill. But I do think a lot of what are going to be attractive areas for an oil company are going to be in the traditional businesses. But guess what? It may not be that you should grow as fast as possible. Maybe your competitive advantage is you got a lot of good long life assets and turning into a yield vehicle can make sense. Uh, maybe you should have more dividends and stock buyback as a pure play upstream producer, which historically was never the business model. And so I think there's a lot of reason to rethink what is the right strategy going forward. Historically, we've had population growth, leads to energy demand growth, leads to oil and gas demand growth. And it's been a very clear pattern, which in the last 150 years, we've never, ever broken away from. And the times that oil and gas has declined has always been a recession. It can't possibly be a strategy to have permanent recession. That is terrible. It's terrible for humanity to have permanent recession. No one should ever aspire to that or risk that happening. But I do think as an oil and gas company to say, is there more risk? That, that linkage at the end, energy demand growth means oil and gas demand growth might break going forward. So how do I, how do I think a little bit differently about things? It is going to slow even if you didn't have climate, especially on the oil side. Um, you know, and so I think th those would be some of the things uh, I would be looking at if I was ever to be the CEO of a company. Arjun, thank you very much. This was fascinating. It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate all your questions and it's been a real pleasure to join you today. Thank you so much. Thank you.